Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are in the room live, watching live online or later on demand, or even listening to our podcast, we've been praying that you would experience the life-changing power of God in your life today. If this is your first time visiting Dayspring, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. There's no need to pretend that everything's perfect in your life. It's certainly not an hour's. We are regular people on a journey, allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives. We're learning to live like Jesus, a little more today than yesterday, a little more tomorrow than today. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. That team is made up of people committed to helping you grow. People grow here because our team loves to challenge, encourage, and equip people to become more like Jesus. So if you're on that journey too, we're looking forward to lending a hand. And even if you aren't sure that you're ready to be on that journey with us, maybe you're skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of his followers. Well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking questions and looking for answers too. So I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Now, let's join our service. Okay, we've reached the third message in our short four-week series that we've called Magnetic, Activating the Power of Influence. Uh, in this series, we are attempting to deconstruct some of the fear that keeps us from boldly inviting uh, people to consider following Jesus with their lives. We're trying to reframe how we think about evangelism and broaden our perspective to more effectively share the good news in our bruised and broken world. Our journey, in our journey to become like Jesus... If we want to believe like, think like, and act like Jesus, if we're going to actually become like Jesus, we're going to have to develop his heart for a, for a world that is far from being like Jesus. Uh, just before he returned to heaven, uh, he gathered with his closest followers and he gave them these instructions found in Matthew chapter 28. He said, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all of the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We call this the Great Commission. Jesus commissioned all. All of his followers, you and me individually in the Capital C Church collectively, he commissioned us, commanded us to help others become like Jesus as well. Now, I guess that most of us in principle agree that we are supposed to share the good news with people uh, far from God. Most, most of us probably have people that we are praying will find Jesus. Uh, we know that life with Jesus 
is far better than life without Jesus and will be far better far longer with Jesus than without him into eternity longer. But if we're honest, we're also pretty passive about sharing the good news with others. And when you dive down deep into all the reasons why, all the reasons why we are passive, fear is usually at the heart of those reasons. Fear keeps us from boldly talking about Jesus. We're afraid that we won't know what to say. We're afraid of starting an awkward conversation. We're afraid we'll offend someone. Or we'll be drawn into an argument defending something that we don't know enough about to hold our own. We're afraid we'll look stupid, sound stupid. We've been using Jesus' parable of the sower to frame how we look at the process of evangelism. In it, Jesus describes four types of soil. The hard soil of the path, rocky soil, thorny soil, and fertile soil. Each soil represents the readiness of a heart to receive the seeds that the farmer sows. Uh, in this parable, each of us is the farmer sowing seeds. The Apostle Paul speaks to this in his letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, he writes, After all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants. That is, we are farmers. Through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose. And both will be rewarded for their own hard work. Like Paul and Apollos, we are farmers sowing and watering seed. God does the rest. He cultivates the soil. He makes the seeds grow. We simply sow seeds and water seeds others have sown. It's really that simple. But as we've been discovering the past couple of weeks, uh, some of the fear that keeps us from sharing the good news keeps it from feeling that simple. Probably because it's wrapped up in a misunderstanding of what evangelism is. I grew up in, a, in solid Bible-believing churches. I'm very thankful for the foundation that was laid in my life by some very godly people. But whether these dear brothers and sisters intended to send me this message or not, I grew up believing that evangelism was a one-size-fits-all approach to the conversation you had with someone when you asked them if they wanted to ask Jesus into their heart. That's evangelism. That approach assumes that either everyone you talk to has fertile soil and is ready to step from one side of the cross to the other, or the readiness of their soil doesn't matter. There is just one way to evangelize. But even if that were ever true, it certainly isn't true today. Today we are dealing with harder and harder soil. If we only focus on fertile soil and we don't adapt our strategy, we'll never help someone begin their journey with Jesus. So we sow everywhere we go intentionally sowing into each soil type. And even though most of the time we don't really know what kind of soil we're sowing into, there are some seeds that will do good work in every soil type. Last week we talked about four examples. Kindness, blessing, surprise graces, and winsomeness. There are more like them scattered through the New Testament. 
these kinds of seeds do their good work in every soil. For rocky soil, we added listening compassionately and speaking sparingly to the kinds of seeds we sow. Uh, Though we don't ever really know what kind of soil we are sowing into, a good clue that we are dealing with rocky soil is the opportunity to connect with someone at a deeper level. As we begin to build a relationship by listening to their story and connecting it to our story, which has been connected to Jesus' story, we sow. All of those seed types are far more effective when they are bundled with a life lived well for Jesus by you. We preach that Jesus changes lives. We offer hope to the hopeless, peace to the peaceless, joy in mourning, purpose in suffering. We offer freedom and victory from the bondage of sin. Our seed is far more effective when our lives prove what we preach, especially when life doesn't go the way we plan. People are watching us to see if Jesus makes a difference. All that to say, to this point in our conversation about evangelism, all of us can sow without fear. Every interaction is an evangelistic opportunity to sow seeds, so sow generously. But at some point in your journey, you are going to be faced with one of those conversations, the ones that scare you. Conversations in thorny soil are riskier. They can be thorny, and no one likes to bleed. These are conversations that have hidden landmines that you feel like you have to tiptoe around. Landmines might be the baggage of past hurts or frustrated expectations. Landmines can be the emotional complexities in your relationship, like a believing wife married to an unbelieving husband. Landmines make these kinds of conversations feel risky. There's a lot at stake. You don't want to blow up the relationship. Besides landmines, sometimes the risk is with grenades that the other person pulls the pin on as they pitch it to you. You know, when someone says Christians are so narrow-minded, they think their religion is the only true religion. How can Jesus be the only way to God? Or if God is so good, why does he allow evil to exist? Or what about all the contradictions in the Bible? Christians are so judgmental, they hate gay people. These are the conversations you don't feel prepared to have. Like you you don't know enough. Has anyone else ever felt that way? Yeah, you're not alone. We've all felt that way. But it is possible for every Christ follower to engage in these conversations. You don't have to have special training. You don't have to have all of the answers, as if you could anyway. Not having the answers shouldn't keep you from having risky conversations. And today, I'm going to give you three simple strategies that will help you navigate any conversation. For the sake of simplicity, let's call them level one, level two, and surprise, level three. Level two builds upon level one, and level three builds upon levels one and two. But before we get there, we need to keep a couple of principles in mind. First, let's look at what Paul told the Colossian church. Uh, In Colossians chapter four, he writes, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. 
Now, we looked at this verse last week. In the New International Version, this verse says, our conversation should be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Let the flavor of Jesus flow through every word you say. Our ability to navigate these risky conversations is impacted by the kind of language we use and the way we use it. Our tone of voice and body language. We need to keep control of our own emotional temperature in the conversation, which can be hard sometimes. But here's what we need to remember when it comes to risky conversations. God doesn't need you to defend him. He can handle that pretty well himself. God also doesn't need you to get defensive for him. Someone who believes differently than you isn't a threat to you or what you believe. Just because someone throws a grenade into a conversation doesn't mean you need to throw it back. Our primary goal in this kind of conversation is to preserve the relationship. If you started as friends, you want to end as friends. Even if you started as enemies, you, want to, you still want to end as friends. So the goal isn't to win an argument. Sure, it would be fantastic to persuade someone. But it is more important to preserve the relationship. Just because you might successfully refute someone's argument about faith doesn't mean that they are going to surrender their life to Jesus at the end of the conversation. In fact, they probably won't. This is thorny soil, not fertile soil. God still has some work to do in their soil, and people are very slow to change their minds. So the win in this conversation isn't that you changed their mind about something. The win is the sowing of seeds that God can use to help them change their own mind. We sow, he brings growth. In preserving the relationship, you earn the right to engage with them again at some point in the future. You can't influence their journey to the cross if you blow up the, the relationship in the process. You have to take a long-term view of the discipleship process. A short-term win might still mean a long-term loss if you lose sight of the goal. Preserve relationship. So as Paul says, let the tone of your conversation be gracious and attractive. You want, them, you want them to see you as the kind of person they can have these kinds of conversations with. If not you, then who? Also, the second part of this verse says uh, that so that you will have the right response for everyone. The minute you get amped up and argumentative, your brain's fight or flight system takes over. And you will have a hard time thinking about anything but survival. That won't make for a productive conversation. You won't be able to think rationally and to consider how to engage in the conversation. And since every conversation is tailor-made to the person that you are talking to, you need full control of your mind in order to have... Uh, in order to bring your best into the moment. Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 3 echo Paul's words uh, to the Colossian church. There he says, instead, that is, instead of worrying about suffering for your belief in Christ, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. That is, be true to the way, to live the way Christ calls you to live. 
And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Now we'll talk about talking about or explaining your hope as a believer next week. But here again, be gentle and respectful. You don't want to walk away from the conversation knowing that you lost control of yourself. For lots of reasons, of course. In his book, Tactics, A Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions, author Gregory Kukul writes, Always make it a goal to keep your conversations cordial. Sometimes that will not be possible. If a principled, charitable expression of your ideas makes someone mad, there is little you can do about it. Jesus' teaching made some people furious. Just make sure it's your ideas that offend and not you. That your beliefs cause the dispute and not your behavior. In this context especially, you don't know how this conversation is going to play itself out in their lives. In faith, we've got to believe that God is going to use whatever we say to bring life to those seeds as the person mulls over the conversation later. So you don't want to get in the, in the way of that process because you didn't handle yourself well. And later, when they are describing the conversation to someone else, you want them to say, I know we disagreed on several points, but he or she really listened to me and respected my viewpoint. The last thing you want is for them to be able to trash talk you with their friends and family. Besides tarnishing your reputation and the reputation of Christ, it hinders your ability to sow seed in the future with their people. So when it comes to the actual conversation, we're going to approach the conversation the way Jesus suggested. In Matthew chapter 10, he says this, Look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. Uh, when you find yourself among wolves, be innocent and shrewd. In 2 Corinthians, Paul describes us as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Ambassadors use diplomacy in their, in their communication. We are going to be conversationally diplomatic, not confrontational, which means that we're going to learn how to be curiously friendly. Now, let me lay out a couple of scenarios to explain. First, it's the night of your weekly Bible study group. During the discussion of the fantastic Sunday sermon on the Great Commission that, the pastor, that pastor Chris gave, um, a, a newcomer remarks, who are we to say Christianity is better than any other religion? I think the essence of Jesus' teaching is love, the same as all religions. It's not our job to tell other people how to live or believe. The rest of the group fidgets awkwardly but says nothing. How do you respond? That's scenario number one. Here's number two. You're at Panera waiting for Sue to show up so that you can study the Bible together. She has her own table there. Uh, the person at the table next to you sees your Bible and says, oh, I've read the Bible before. It's got some interesting stories, but you can't really take it all that seriously. It was only written by men after all, and men make mistakes. Your mind goes blank. That's usually what happens to me. How do you respond? How 
do you respond? In each of these scenarios, you have a 10-second window to decide what to do. The door is open for about 10 seconds, and then it closes. You want to respond, but you also don't want to cause a scene or get in too deep. After all, your mind just went blank. What do you say? This is where friendly curiosity is your friend. This is how level one plays out. Instead of heading straight to a debate, we're going to ask one simple question. I'd suggest memorizing the question so that when your mind does go blank, it comes back to the surface quickly, but that's up to you. Remember, you only got 10 seconds before the door closes. So here's the question. What do you mean by that? Now remember, you aren't defensive, you're curious. So it isn't, what do you mean by that? Body language and, and tone of voice are important here. Oh, interesting. What do you mean by that? And then you're gonna just keep asking questions. A Hugh Hewitt, author of In But Not Of, a primer for Christians on the thoughtful engagement of our culture, suggests asking at least half a dozen questions in every conversation. Sincere questions are friendly and flattering and communicate that you care about the person's ideas. Questions make people feel heard. For example, let's go back to scenario one. Christianity is basically the same as all religions. The main similarity is love. We shouldn't tell others how to live or believe. What do you mean by the same as other religions? There's always a peanut gallery. <laughs> what do you mean by the same as other religions? And then you're going to listen. You might follow up with other questions to help draw the person out. You might end up asking, what do you mean by that in some form multiple times? But you're just asking questions, starting with, what do you mean by that? Besides making the speaker feel heard, asking questions also accomplishes three more very important things. First, it gives you time to pull yourself together to consider what the best response might be when and if you get to that point. You're basically in learning mode, figuring out their worldview. Second, questions help ensure that you understood them correctly. People aren't always great with their words. And you'd be surprised at how often we don't even define our terms the same way. And we let our emotions get in the way and we fill in the gaps with our own assumptions, not only about what they've said, but why they've said it and how they've said it. And we never put good stuff in the gap. You don't want to put words in their mouth. And the third thing asking questions does, and this is very important, asking questions puts you in the driver's seat. As you get better at it, questions allow you to direct the flow of the conversation while letting them do all the talking. So this, this first question is a beginner level question that simply allows you to gather information without putting any pressure on you. It lets, it lets you know what a person thinks. Even better, it forces the other person to think. Too many people don't know, don't even know what they mean many times. 
They're just parroting what they see in our culture. They haven't actually thought it through themselves. And after you've gathered the information you need, the next question you're going to ask is also a beginner level question, meaning anyone can ask it. You don't have to have any special knowledge about the subject at all to ask it. We're still on level one. Once you know what they mean by that, you're, we're going to ask, how did you come to that conclusion? Let's go back to our first scenario again. You're, you're in your weekly Bible study and the new guy says, Christianity is basically the same as all other religions. The main similarity is love. We shouldn't tell others how to think or believe. Now that you know what they mean, we want to discover how they came to that conclusion. What are their sources? There are Lots of variations of this question. Feel free to use them. But the basic, how, do you, how did you come to that conclusion, works pretty well. What is the proof? So now we're asking, how did you come to the conclusion that Christianity is basically the same as all other religions? Now what's really cool about this question is that it begins to shift the burden of proof from you to them. Last week, we talked about whether we were going to engage our culture using their script or our own. The world's script wants to put us on the defensive. We don't have to buy into that premise. We aren't the only ones who should be able to defend what we believe. So when you shift the burden of proof from you to them, you'll see pretty quickly that people can't defend, most people can't defend why they believe something any more than they can explain what they believe beyond a few sentences. Which makes sense. When you think about it, we believe in truth. Everything that is not truth is a lie. It doesn't take long for lies to expose their cracks. False ideologies fall apart rather quickly. But remember the goal. We are sowing seeds. We don't have to successfully refute whatever they say to sow seeds. Simply listening sows seeds. Genuine curiosity sows seeds. Thoughtful discovery sows seeds. It feels like it's a tongue twister. We're trying to preserve the relationship so that we can continue to have further conversations in the future. And if we expose a crack or two in their ideology, we can consider that a bonus. Especially in an initial conversation, if this is all the farther you get, you leave with all of the information you need to take the conversation to the next level. You, you know what you need to figure out between now and the next time. And since you've only been asking questions up to this point, you've begun to get a sense of the state of this person's soil. What, what did their body language and tone of voice communicate to you? If it is hard soil city, then I wouldn't worry about taking the conversation any further than this right now anyway. Give God time to do his good work in the soil with the seeds that you've already planted. If during the conversation uh, they try to turn the tables on you and begin to ask you questions, remember that you are in complete control of your side of the conversation. If you sense honest engagement and feel prepared to take the conversation deeper, please do. Please feel free to respond appropriately. But if the, the topic is a complex one that you need time to research, that's okay too. And if you sense that they're just trying to stir up an argument, you have no obligation to engage with them at that level. A simple, I really appreciate the opportunity to, that I've had to hear from you. 
I'm just in learning mode and I want to thoughtfully consider what you've said. Maybe next time I can share what we think, what I think. One of our day springers has been engaging a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses in regular conversation. After a few weeks of this kind of dialogue, she came to us and asked for some resources to help her take it a step further. Now that she knows what they believe and why, she wants to be able to go deeper as she refutes what they sincerely believe respectfully with specific truth. Again, here on level one, just these two questions can begin to reveal cracks in a person's ideology. And that is enough. If you've made it this far and preserved the relationship, you've got a win under your belt. You haven't had to defend anything. You've just asked friendly questions, trying to figure out what the person believes and why. You haven't had to put anything on the line. So there's been no pressure, which also means no reason to fear. In both of these scenarios, the other person initiated the conversation. But this works uh, both ways. When you initiate the conversation as well, friendly curiosity works both ways. But regardless of how the conversation began, up to this point, you've played a pretty passive role. But you don't always have to be passive in your questioning. You can level up your questions and take a more offensive approach in an inoffensive way. In level two, you do that by asking a different type of question. It's called a leading question. If you were watching a classic Perry Mason uh, episode or some other courtroom drama, the opposing attorney might object that you are leading the witness, but none of them are with you, so you're good to go. As the name suggests, a leading question takes the person and the conversation in the direction you want to go. Leading questions allow you to defeat flawed arguments or points of view without making statements. You're still just asking questions. They are just intentionally designed to reveal the cracks in an ideology. It's much more effective to persuade someone when you get them to identify the flaws in their own argument. So let's, res let's return to our two scenarios. Scenario one, Christianity is basically the same as all other religions. The main similarity is love. We shouldn't tell others how to think or believe. So question one, what do you mean when you say the same as all other religions? And question two, how did you come to that conclusion? So far, so good. Now we're going to level up. Well, how much have you studied other religions to compare the details and find a common theme? Do you see the shift? I've now aimed the arrow of our conversation in a specific direction. Why would the similarities be more important than the differences? I'm curious. What do you think Jesus' own attitude was on this issue? Did he, did he think all religions were basically equal? Isn't you telling people how to love one another just another example of telling them how they should live and believe? Of course you're giving the person an opportunity to respond, but notice that the question asker is still in control of the conversation. 
It's just that now it is intentionally headed in a direction that will lead to the flaw in the ideology. In this case, there are multiple flaws, but this last question highlights the ideology flaw that someone is telling you what you should or not should not tell someone, and they don't think you should, but they can. But you can't, but they can. See, and scenario two, while we're, while we're waiting for Sue at Panera, the person next to you says you can't take the Bible too seriously because it was only written by men and men make mistakes. So you start with your level one questions and then tell me, do you have any books in your library? Were those books written by humans? Do you find any truth in them? Easy questions, but clearly lead somewhere. Is there a reason you think the Bible is less truthful or reliable than the other books that you own? I mean, do people always make mistakes in what they write? Do you think that if God did exist, he would be capable of using humans to write down exactly what he wants? If not, why not? And then, just like it was okay to end level one at level one, it's okay to end level two right here. The key to finding the flaw in their thinking is by listening to their reasons and then asking if the conclusion follows from the evidence. But you're still pointing out errors with questions rather than statements. By the way, level two can occur anytime. It doesn't have to immediately follow your level one conversation. You can end your level one conversation, research the topic, and then come back and re-engage the person for level two. When we get to level three, things change once again. On level three, we are going to more actively refute false claims or counter false data. Most of us are going to need to practice level one, levels one and two for a while before we get to level three. So I'm going to leave it at that for now and leave you with a recommendation. The book that I quoted from earlier, Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions by Gregory Kukul is a fantastic resource for anyone interested in improving their questioning techniques. It has helped frame our discussion today, and the scenarios that I mentioned come out of it or were adapted from it. We have copies available at the bookstore in the lobby, and I hope by the end of the day we don't have copies available at the bookstore in the lobby. This is too important to just let go. Now, before we pray, let me tell you about Abik. He was our Uber driver in Atlanta. Joaquin, who is on staff here with me, uh, Joaquin and I were on our way home from a mission trip to Peru. We had nine hours to kill in Atlanta. And what comes as a surprise to no one, we decided to visit the world of Coca-Cola. Our flight uh, had come in early, and since we had plenty of time before our next flight, we decided that a mass transit adventure would be fun. So we took the train from the airport into downtown Atlanta. Of course, it was winter and cold, and I was in shorts, because after all, it wasn't winter in Peru. And of course, we got off at the wrong stop which meant a very long, very brisk walk to Centennial Park where the world of Coca-Cola makes its home. After experiencing the history of Coca-Cola, the tasting room where you can sample most of the most popular Coca-Cola made drinks from around the world, and then stocking up on 
Diet Coke merchandise. We were hungry. There weren't any restaurants in close proximity, and it was too cold to walk again, so we called an Uber. A beak answered our call, and we headed out to what we were assured was the best barbecue joint in town. Through his thick accent, we learned that he was a refugee from Ethiopia. Joaquin told him where we were from and mentioned that we were homebound, returning from a mission trip to Peru. Immediately, his body language changed. He went from being relaxed to tense and on edge. And in a tone that carried an edge sharper than a well-honed knife, he said, how do you define emissions? Joaquin, who had been doing most of the talking up to this point, suddenly forgot how to speak at all. So I, I explained that in Matthew chapter 28 of the Bible, uh, Jesus told his followers to go into the world and make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. With the same tone of voice, he asked if we had studied every other religion in the world. I told him that I had studied some. And then we arrived at the restaurant. As we got there, he, he asked... What is the difference between what you believe and all those other religions? We were hungry. So I promised to call him when we were done eating so that we could finish our conversation on the way back to the airport. I was glad I had the opportunity to pray and gather my thoughts. We alerted our prayer network to be praying with us as we asked God for wisdom to connect with Abik's heart. Okay, who am I kidding? I wanted the wisdom to connect with the beak's heart. Joaquin didn't need any wisdom. He was clearly leaving the conversation to me. Conveniently, he remembered that English wasn't his first language. <laughs> so he was in charge of prayer. After lunch, we called a beak to pick us up. Instead of running headlong through a minefield, I knew I needed to take control of the conversation. So I asked him to tell us his story, which he did. And for the next 45 minutes, we had a fantastic conversation. In Ethiopia, Abik had been a member of an Orthodox church. He had been raised in what he called a Christian family. He had gone to school for eight years to become a deacon in his church, which gave him a close-up vantage point to determine that all religions are used to manipulate people into doing something. When he finally saw what the church was doing to people, he left it. And after moving to Atlanta to chase the American dream, he now just tries to be good enough. If he takes, his family, if he takes care of his family, treats others with respect, and doesn't kill or cheat, hopefully that will be good enough to get to heaven. Now I knew what was going on under the surface. I knew what he believed and why which gave me an opportunity to take the conversation a little bit further. I could help him identify the flaw in his thinking. Good enough? What is good enough? How do you ever know if you are good enough? Every other religion in the world uses that as their benchmark. Good enough. 
Meaning that you have to do something, be good enough, sacrifice enough, work hard enough, give enough money to get into whatever version of heaven there is for that religion. The gospel of you have to do something is what we call legalism, which was exactly what had left a bad taste in a beak's mouth. Every other religion teaches a gospel of works. What sets Christianity, true Christianity, apart from all of them, is the gospel of grace. And for the rest of the trip, we explained grace to Abik. Now, this was clearly a God-orchestrated appointment. We were put in Abik's path for a purpose. But even though this was long before I had the language to explain my strategy like I have today, it gives you a picture of what it looks like to ask questions collect information, and then direct a conversation. So let's have more conversations like this. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for a beak and for the privilege of knowing his story and the privilege of crossing his path. And even now to this day, I don't know what you've done with those seeds. But I believe in faith that you have been doing something in his life and in the life of his family. So, Father, I pray for a beak and I pray for so many others in the world like him. People who don't understand the blessing of grace. And, Father, I pray that we would be the kind of people who ooze grace everywhere we go. And that as we ooze grace and live the way you've called us to live and boldly proclaim that you are Lord of all, even if we never use your words and it's just through our kindness and through blessing, Father, we pray that you would give life to those seeds and they would come to the place where they are growing in fertile soil and people can find out what it looks like to have a relationship with a God who loves them far more than we could ever understand on this side of heaven. Father, thank you for the freedom that we find in grace. Thank you that we don't have to do anything to get into heaven but receive the grace that comes through Jesus who died for us on the cross, who took our place for our sin and then rose again three days later conquering death so that we could live with him forever. Father, give us opportunities to sow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions on your own or with others will help the truth of God's word begin to shape your life as you grow to be like Jesus. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of the faithful giving of people who called Dayspring their home church. God's work in their lives has left them changed, has made them more like Jesus, 
and they have come to understand how God uses their generosity to encourage others to become like Jesus as well. So if you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. We count it a privilege to play a small part in God's perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Until we meet again, I am praying that God would give you opportunities to use your influence for the glory of his kingdom. And one more thing, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that's appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. If this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives. So keep sowing.